Hey, everybody, welcome back to Go Help Yourself, a comedy self help podcast to make life suck less. Lest um, we're going with it. I am one of your hosts, but just one, Misty Stinnett, and the other wonderful, very clearly my better half, Lisa Linky, is across the screen. Not at all. We are ready today to read and review a popular self help book with you. We are going to do our best to give you the highs of the book, the lows of the book, the major takeaways, probably some major criticisms, and give you the nuggets of wisdom so that in less than an hour, you can know if the book is worth your time and if you want to dive in further and support the author because we cannot possibly cover everything that, you know, a multi-hundred page book covers in but one hour. But you'll also know if this book is not for you and if you shouldn't waste your time and money and other resources trying to become a better person with something that's not going to do that for you. (laughs) That's what's happening here. We also cuss. It's an explicit podcast because self-help is fucking gnarly. And we also want to acknowledge that this is the first episode that's going to be airing after the election, but we are recording this on September 21st. So we have traveled back in time. It is... A very precarious place to be in America on September 21st. A kindler, gentler, more terrifying Maybe. Time. Who can know? <laughs> Honestly, who can know? We do not know the results of the election or what's happening. And we just want to hang a lantern on that because we don't want you to think we're not acknowledging any of the major events of the last few days. So right. that being said, we're going to dive right in. And you know what, Misty, this book is perfect regardless for any outcome at any point in time ever. So it's it's evergreen. Eventually, I hope it won't be evergreen, but right now it's evergreen. Uh, yeah, I hope maybe one day everyone will go, well, duh, I read that in fifth grade, like moving on. So Lisa, what are you bringing to us today? I am bringing to us How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Yes. Kendi. It is the New York Times bestseller. It is on everybody's list of books to read in 2019 and 2020. It is all of that and more. It was published in 2019. I feel like it really kind of came to worldwide attention this year. Can't imagine why. So some book prices, the Kindle is $14.99. Hardcover is $16.20. Paperback, $16.29. These prices will vary depending on where you buy. And... The cost is $28 on Audible, and it's narrated by the author. He has a higher-pitched voice, if you've ever heard him speak. I don't know if... I wouldn't want anyone else to read his memoir slash ideology, but I also don't know that it's... um, Some of the reviews on Audible were like, I wish he would have had a narrator. Oh, interesting. And I would recommend buying the book because this is something I'm going to refer to and look back to for the rest of my life. Right, right. And maybe you can take notes. So it's more of a textbook for me. Right, in the margins, bookmark stuff. That's cool. So let me tell you a little bit about the author. Ibram X. Kendi is one of America's foremost historians and leading anti-racist voices. He's a National Book Award winning and number one New York Times bestselling author. He's the Andrew W. Mellon (laughs) Professor in the Humanities and the founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. 
He's a contributor writer at The Atlantic and a CBS News correspondent. He's the 2021 Francis B. Cashin Fellow at the Radcliffe Institute for the Advanced Study at Harvard University. Which, of course, was founded by Daniel Radcliffe, who played Harry Potter. So it's basically the point. <laughs> That's not true. Go to bed. That's true. It's 100% true. Kendi is the author of The Black Campus Movement, which won the W.E.B. Du Bois Book Prize and stamped from the beginning the definitive history of racist ideas in America, which won the National Book Award for Nonfiction in 2016. At 34 years old, he was the youngest ever winner of the NBA for nonfiction. That's the National Book Award. Oh, wow. He grew up dreaming about playing the, in the NBA, National Basketball Association, and ironically, he ended up joining the other NBA. <laughs> <laughs> he is also the author of three number one New York Times bestsellers, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which we're covering today, an international bestseller that has been translated in several languages, Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You, co-authored with Jason Reynolds, and Anti-Racist Baby, illustrated by Ashley Lukashevi. How to Be an Anti-Racist made several best books of 2019 list and was described in the New York Times as, quote, the most courageous book to date on the problem of race in the Western mind. Wow. He's also written in 14 essays and books and journals. He's published op-eds, numerous periodicals, including New York Times, The Guardian, Washington Post, London Review, Time, you know, People think he's dumb. He has commented on a series of international, national, and local media outlets such as CNN, MSNBC, NPR, Al Jazeera, PBS, BBC. You know, you get it. Um, and he is a speaker of the world around. He says he strives to be a hardcore anti-racist and softcore vegan. He enjoys joking it up with friends and family, partaking in African-American culture, weightlifting, reading provocative books, discussing the issues of the day with open-minded people, and hoping and pressing for the day the New York Knicks will win an NBA championship and for the day this nation and world will be ruled by the best of humanity. Oh, he sounds really funny. I know, he's great. In 2013, he changed his middle name from Henry to Zolani, meaning peace in Zulu, and surname from Rogers to Kendi when he wed Dr. Sadika Kendi, a pediatric emergency physician from Albany, Georgia. They chose their new name together and unveiled Kendi, meaning loved one, in Meru to their family and friends at their wedding. Their wedding photos, including Sadika's beautiful gold dress, were featured in Essence magazine. So first impressions, my mom actually read this book before I did, Linda, and I bought it for her and she read it and she's wonderful. It is just over 300 pages, but there's notes and an appendix. So it's probably like 230, I would say. And I was really excited to read it. I have started reading Stamped. I'm in the first of five sections and it's, he's brilliant and wonderful and he you know, he does a really good job of contextualizing everything, which is wonderful Great. and also Very thorough. horrible. <laughs> so this book really is, I, I, I can't cover everything at all <laughs> because you. it's enormous. And I, you know, it took me time to read because I wanted to like sit down and digest. And there were things that I just realized I needed to change. But overall, I want to talk about a few things and give you a couple points of interest from the book. Great. So I feel like this is probably a silly question because of the title of the book, but if you had to summarize it in one sentence, what would you say this book is about? This book is about one man's journey, his life experiences, and his educational experiences, and his growth, and how he has learned to become an anti-racist, and kind of his practical applications therein. Okay, so there's... But most of the chapters start with definitions of what we'll be talking about. And then he talks about a time in his life where he learned this lesson. 
And the way that he's formatted the book, it starts with how his parents met before he was born and how, and then how he grew up in the schools he went to and then junior high, middle high, middle high, junior high school, high school, college, postdoctorate, and then kind of living and working as a professor. It's really fascinating. And he's done such a great job of laying the book out. And he touches on all the intersections that happen in racism. Wow. And it's fascinating. And through a, through an anti-racist viewpoint, it's totally fascinating. So I have marked just a couple areas, but I want to start off with, um, in chapter one, just some basic definitions here. He says, racist, one who is supporting a racist policy through their actions or inaction or expressing a racist idea. Anti-racist, one who is supporting an anti-racist policy through their actions or expressing an anti-racist idea. The long and the short of it is that he's like, when people say I'm not racist, that doesn't exist. The opposite of racist isn't not racist. The opposite of racist is anti-racist. I was going to say the the things that I noticed were missing from the anti-racist definition is not absence of racism, right? It's not someone who does not say racist things. It's someone who actively expresses anti-racist ideas. Because we are neither racist or anti-racist as people. We are each moment to moment either racist or anti-racist in our actions, our thoughts, our beliefs, our ideals, our policies, the way we vote, the way we support. Wow. All of that. Yeah. I love that because it separates the person from their actions, right? Yeah. There's three things that I really want to, three things I really want to talk about about this book, and then I'll give you some specifics. The first is that I mentioned that he comes at anti-racist approaches apply to any facet and all the intersections. So race, class, sex, gender, space, you know, colorism, all of this stuff. He tackles them one by one in, in chapters and they match up with his experiences going through life. It's fascinating. It's done so well. And he owns up to his own racist beliefs and how he has learned to become anti-racist. And I, I, there's something very vulnerable in that and powerful in somebody who says, this is how I used to think. And then when I started really looking inward and critiquing my thoughts, I realized I was being unfair. And so now this is how I think and this is how I work. And the other thing that is really jumping out to me, Lisa, is I feel like, I mean, you and I have talked offline in the last few days a lot about authors and caveats and their responsibility to addressing things for the reader rather than assuming the reader will do all of the work themselves. And so many authors say, well, if I addressed every caveat, it would really just bog down my writing. And it sounds like in this book, Ibram X. Kendi has taken the time to talk about all of the intersections and how all the points of intersectionality and how that affects what he's talking about in different ways. And it does seem like it can be done and that it can then also be a mega bestseller. So it's really interesting just to point that out for everybody who's saying like, oh, well, you can't always include everything in a book. And it's like, yeah, but maybe you could not a little bit. And maybe that's our responsibility if we have a platform. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's also set up for success and that his formula is to talk about how each of these different isms or ideas in society 
intersect with race. So like he's, I will say he's set up for it, but he also then acknowledges to himself in which some readers may identify with him, right? Like I also thought like that, or I also currently think like that, like you did. And then the third that really changed my mind and mindset is, you know, we have often said race is a social construct and we hear it a lot now. And he does not agree with that. He says that race is a power construct. And from the beginning of time, it's been intertwined with capitalism. So it's, it's really about people, whoever creates this hierarchy, the people on top want the power. And so it's not a social construct, it's a power construct. That's a really powerful difference. Like as that's hitting my brain, I'm realizing that saying something is a social construct kind of takes the venom out of it, kind of takes the intent out yeah. of it. But what's the point of a social construct anyway? It's to organize people into sort of a social hierarchy. So when you say it's a, a power construct, that, that really feels right. You pointed out that it takes the venom away from it if it's a social construct. Yeah. But in a power construct, you know immediately who needs to be responsible for changing it. Yes. And you understand oh, this is meant to take away power from people on the bottom of this hierarchy in order to give it or maintain for the people at the top. Yeah, it really paints a clearer picture. Yeah, because he's such a historian about how it began. It began as a way to explain the need for slavery. Right. Through religion, for capitalistic means. Right. And colonialism. Yes. Like, you can't get around it. So he always comments about these like conjoined twins that, that it's like racism and capitalism and like they're forever intertwined. One cannot escape or, or live without the other. So I know when Linda was reading it, she was like, I'm in this part where he's talking about, you know, how we, how capitalism is, you know, this conjoined twin. I hadn't gotten to that part yet. So she wasn't breaking it, that down for me, but she was saying, I'm, I'm anxious about what he says will need to be, you know? And I was like, well, listen, lots of countries do not exist in capitalism. And I think a lot of us are recognizing that capitalism requires a strata and a hierarchy and that not everybody will benefit, you know? And some people are questioning the value of that. It takes a lot of people working really hard for almost no pay to make a ton of money for the people at the top. Yeah, I mean, here's what she added. She said, the broadening of his thinking and of his understanding beyond the construct of racism to class, gender, sexual preference, religious practices and beliefs, and how we think of others as either, quote, acceptable or beyond our ability to accept the division of we and they into us. She says, it's a lot to absorb. It is a lot to absorb. So if I feel, if I sound a little like I've just done mushrooms, it's because there are so many concepts in this book that my brain is literally reforming. Well, yeah, because it sounds like it sounds like there's some cognitive dissonance going on because you're having to like unlearn things as you're learning new things. For sure. And I do love that race is a power construct. I agree with it 100%. And it's really great. Okay, so I'm going to dive into some of the things that I earmarked. In chapter two, he talks about dueling consciousness, which is how African-American and Black people, he, he kind of switches between both uses here, uh, how they have to, at the same time, exist with this 
thought of like valuing themselves and also exist in a culture that doesn't value themselves. And that is at like the 50 foot level, 50 foot, excuse me, 50,000 foot level. W.E. Du Bois termed that term, coined that term double consciousness. So Du Bois said double consciousness and then Ibram is calling it dueling consciousness. Got it. So Du Bois said to be American is to be white and to be white is to not be a Negro. So how do Black Americans, this is this double consciousness, but then Ibram said a better, more precisely, it could be termed dueling consciousness. And then W.E. Du Bois explained, one ever feels his two-ness, an American, a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body whose dogged strength alone keeps it from being torn asunder. So he's really talking about that and this is around the turn of the century in 1900s, really talking about this having to reconcile between what the external society is impressing upon me about who I am as a monolith, this, you know, what Black people are versus who I am and how I feel and how I want to value and love my culture. It sounds so hard. Yeah, it still exists. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So in this chapter, he defines three distinct types of being in terms of racism. And then he uses these and explains them throughout the book. The first is an assimilationist, one who is expressing the racist idea that a racial group is culturally or behaviorally inferior and is supporting cultural or behavioral enrichment programs to develop that racial racial group. Or Rachel, what if it all became Rachel's? Rachel, oh, Karen's and Rachel's. Karen's and Rachel's. Then there's segregationists. One who's expressing the racist idea that a permanently inferior racial group can never be developed and is supporting policy that segregates away that racial group. And then an anti-racist is one who is expressing the idea that racial groups are equals and none needs developing and is supporting policy that reduces racial inequity. Yes. And so throughout the book, you'll, you'll hear him say that most of the anti-racist actions are about supporting policy and identifying what is a racist policy or an anti-racist policy. Because as we learned from So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijeoma Oluo, so much of this has to deal with what is supported by systems of power. Yes, Mm -hmm. exactly. Right. So I loved that because it makes it really tangible. Yeah. Oh yeah, because you immediately go, okay, if I'm taking action, that is kind of the litmus test If I'm speaking out, taking action, donating, calling senators, supporting a cause, protesting. Yeah. Great. Something that's a little, it's not controversial, but it's different than what you hear in a lot of current books right now, is that he says reverse racism can absolutely exist. Individuals can practice racism against entire groups of people. They can practice you know, the belief that a certain culture is inferior, there's colorism, there's all of these examples. And then he says what that does is it also strips away all of the power of the numerous Black and African-American CEOs, senators, state legislatures, et cetera, who could have been enacting anti-racist policy. So he says, when you say that Black people can't be racist, you, in essence, also take away their power when they are in power positions because they could be fighting for anti-racist policy. Oh, this is really bending my brain into a knot. I see why it took you a long time to read this book. (laughs) You're either racist or anti-racist in your actions. 
right? So if I'm a Black senator and I am not, I do not support an anti-racist policy, in effect, my action is racist. So what was so different in this book was his focus on policy. It gave us like a real intense focus on policy. And so then it doesn't matter who's in power, whether they're white or Black. Their actions are either racist or anti-racist based on the policy that they draft, support, and enact, and then uphold. He says, so what are racist policies and ideas? We have to define them separately to understand why they are married and why they interact so well together. So he talks about racial inequity as a way to understand these two. Racial inequity is when two or more racial groups are not standing on approximately equal footing. So for example, 71% of white families lived in owner-occupied homes in 2014 compared to 45% of Latinx families and 41% of Black families. Racial equity is when two or more racial groups are standing on a relatively equal footing. So a racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial inequity between racial groups. An anti-racist policy is any measure that produces or sustains racial equity between racial groups. By policy, I mean written and unwritten laws, rules, procedures, processes, regulations, and guidelines that govern people. There is no such thing as non-racist or race-neutral policy. Every policy in every institution in every community in every nation is producing or sustaining either racial inequity or equity between racial groups. So he says they have been described by other terms, institutional racism, structural racism, and systemic racism. And he says those are vaguer terms than racist policy, like you were commenting earlier. Racist policy says exactly what the problem is and where the problem is. Institutional racism and structural racism and systemic racism are redundant. Racism itself is institutional, structural, and systemic. Oh, shit. So racist policy, yeah, racist policy also cuts to the core of racism better than racial discrimination. Racial discrimination is an immediate and visible manifestation of an underlying racial policy. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. Because I feel like that simplifies it in a really powerful way. Not that it's a simple concept, but you're like, oh, this is the root every time. Yes. So when someone discriminates against a person in a racial group, they are carrying out a policy or taking advantage of the lack of a protective policy. We all have the power to discriminate. Only an exclusive few have the power to make policy. Focusing on, quote, racial discrimination takes our eyes off the central agents of racism, racist policy, and racist policymakers, or what I call racist power. That would be paying attention to the symptom, not the cause. Exactly. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. Mm. And then he, so he says, the most threatening racist movement is not the alt-right's unlikely drive for a white ethnostate, but the regular Americans drive for a race-neutral one. Mm-hmm. Yep. The construct of race neutrality actually feeds white nationalist victimhood by positing the notion that any policy protecting or advancing non-white Americans toward equity is, quote, reverse discrimination. Right, because if you're neutral, anything that's protective looks like it's moving away from that neutrality. Okay. That's right. So this is also where, so this is, so this is like, this is page 20 and already your mind is like, (laughs) I know. I feel like I need a semester in a college course where we read one chapter a week and break it down and talk about it. Yeah. Because nobody's ever presented ideas in this format for me. Right. And 
it goes beyond. So in white fragility, we covered like we got beyond the binary that racist is bad. Right. And other and other than you're good. But this just kind of lays it out that it's like, no, everybody will either be racist or anti-racist in every moment. In each moment. <laughs> right. And yeah. it, it's interesting because that makes me go like, that just puts so much accountability on me, which I'm grateful for because it reminds me that, hey, even if I went to a protest this morning and donated to the ACLU in the afternoon, I can still have a moment of racism, accidental or not, implicit or not, you know, in the evening. And that makes me really need to step up my game and continue to self-examine and hold myself accountable. 100% Misty. The other piece of that is when you combine that thought and that kind of mode of thinking with the, I'm getting tingles because my brain is still aligning around this stuff. Do you know that when my brain reorganizes, I like, I get lightheaded a little bit and I get I do pimples. too. Do you want to know? I also, I get overloaded and I feel this like kind of heavy sensation in the front of my brain and I have to take a lot of naps. Like anytime I'm taking a writing seminar, I have to lie down a lot. <laughs> so I love it. We're the same. So as I, maybe it's such a strategic brain is like literally the Rubik's Cube pieces are moving yeah. out. <laughs> So in this vein of we are not non-racist, we are either racist or anti-racist in every moment, combined with this idea that race is not a social construct, but a power concept, a power structure, then while you and I definitely need to do some introspection and make sure that we are aware of all of our biases and that we are working towards an anti-racist culture and society, it is incumbent upon those in power who typically happen to be white and male to enact, support, legislate, protect, uphold anti-racist policies. Yes. And meanwhile, all the time, we have to be reminding ourselves for sheer steadfastness and perseverance, you can be a good person and have racist thoughts have implicit racism. It's growing up in America. Right. Exactly, exactly. So just remember that it's not racists are terrible people and only wonderful, perfect people are non-racist. It's you have to separate yourself from that good, bad binary. He has a whole chapter on biology and how the history of how people used to make race inferior based on biology. How they tried to commission medical studies that showed that and literally there's zero oh, evidence. It's true, but in the 1900s, they did commission them. The reports did come out in favor of whatever they needed them to say. So for a long time, we were operating under incorrect assumption. He says, I do not use the, quote, microaggression term anymore. I detest the post-racial platform that supported its sudden popularity. I detest its component parts, micro and aggression. A persistent daily low hum of racist abuse is not minor. I use the term abuse because aggression is not ex as exacting a term. Abuse accurately describes the action and its effects on people, distress, anger, worry, depression, anxiety, pain, fatigue, and suicide. What other people call mic racial microaggressions, I call racist abuse. And I call the zero tolerance policies preventing and punishing these abusers what they are, anti-racist. Only racists shy away from the R word, racism, is steeped in denial. So. This was interesting too. He really, when it, 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 he puts up this binary, right? And usually you and I hate a binary, but the binary isn't coding you for life. <laughs> it's 
I can, it's a way I can measure. That's right. It's a way I can measure the effectiveness of a policy. It's the way I can measure the, the content of somebody's words. Right. And so I appreciated that. I really appreciated that. I do too. And that's fascinating about the verbiage around microaggression. Cause he's right. It's not, it's not small. It might take subtle forms, but it, the effect is not small. Yes. Wow. I'm jumping to the chapter on white. He does a whole chapter on white people. He says, the only thing wrong with white people is they embrace racist ideas and policies and then deny their ideas and policies are racist. This is not to ignore that white people have massacred and enslaved millions of indigenous and African peoples, colonized and impoverished millions of people of color around the globe as their nations grew rich, all the while producing racist ideas that blame the victims. This is to say their history of pillaging is not the result of the evil genes or cultures of white people. There's no such thing as white genes. We must separate the warlike, greedy, bigoted, and individualistic cultures of modern empire and racial capitalism, more on that later, from the cultures of white people. They are not one and the same. The resistance within white nations shows resistance admittedly often tempered by racist ideas. To be anti-racist is to never mistake the global march of white racism for the global march of white people. To be anti-racist is to never mistake the anti-racist hate of white racism for the racist hate of white people. To be anti-racist is to never conflate racist people with white people knowing there are anti-racist whites and racist non-whites. To be anti-racist is to see ordinary white people as the frequent victimizers of people of color and the frequent victims of racist power. Donald Trump's economic policies are geared toward enriching white male power, but at the expense of most of his white male followers along with the rest of us. We must discern the difference between racist power, which is racist policymakers, and white people. For decades, racist power contributed to stagnating wages, destroying unions, deregulating banks and corporations, and steering funding for schools into prison and military budgets, policies that have often drawn a backlash from some white people. White economic inequality, for instance, soared to the point that the so-called 99 percenters occupied Wall Street in 2011. And Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders ran a popular presidential campaign against the billionaire class in 2016. Of course, Ordinary white people benefit from racist policies, though not nearly as much as racist power and not nearly as much as they could from an equitable society, one where the average white voter could have as much power as super rich white men to decide elections and shape policy. What the first part of what he was saying reminds me so much of is where he was talking about how a lot of white people don't think that there are these policies in place or they don't see it. Is just a reminder that when you have privilege, it's often invisible. It is very invisible because it's not your experience to be discriminated against on a policy level. And so you think, no way, those policies don't exist because you've never experienced it. But if you have tried to go in and get a loan as a person of color, even though you have an incredible credit score and you're either turned down or your interest rate is through the roof or whatever, you know that these things exist. So just remember that just because you haven't experienced it, it might be because you are a member of a privileged class. And so those restrictions haven't applied to you and it hasn't been your experience. That doesn't mean that it is not the experience of many other people. And that was a big lesson for me. And once I started to see my privilege, I couldn't not see it everywhere but if you if you truly just google what is white privilege or what is male privilege you will find a list of 
situations, advantages, things you may never have thought about. And it it might open your eyes. So I encourage everybody to do that if you're like, well, wait a second. Because it is hard to, it's hard to tackle something when it's invisible to you. So the first thing we have to do is start understanding what those differences are for different people with different skin colors. I would also say that in his argument here, white people are being, poor white people are being discriminated against without their awareness, right? Right. Yes. So he's saying that racist policymakers, which is about race as a power construct. So those in power, are they going to work to give themselves more power or people at the bottom power? Right. And that's where that intersection of class. Yes. And so when people think like, oh, this can't, you know, as I've finished the book, an anti-racist policy works to equate across all the intersections. Yeah. So white people will benefit from an anti-racist policy because it will, it will not be discriminated for sex, for gender, for class, for, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like for ability, level, for right. all of those things. That's so interesting. Yeah. So when he's saying this, like, hey, white policymakers are constructing racist policies that affect white people too. Right. And when we have these protective measures in place or these anti-racist policies in place, it can lift up a lot more than just... Well, it works to just make it equal footing. Right. Right. Wow. I have a question. Yeah. Does he ever in the book break down how to have like an anti-racist conversation or call out things like that? So this is more like you were saying 50,000 feet policy level, here's the whole playing field. I don't know, but I don't think his approach would be on an individual level. I think his approach would be at a power level. It doesn't matter how many conversations I have if the people in power are going to continue to propagate racist policy. This is fascinating. My strategy brain is thinking about the other books we've covered in the same vein, and it's going, okay, If you want to understand the breadth and depth of the system, read How to Be an Anti-Racist. If you then want to understand the nitty-gritty of how to start having these conversations physically, what to say and how to stay on track, you read So You Want to Talk About Race. And then if you want to make sure that as a white person or someone attempting to have these conversations with a white person You can avoid some of the minefields that sometimes deter these conversations. You might want to read White Fragility. And also read them all at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, all at the same time, switching chapters between, you'll be fine. It's just drink a lot of caffeine. For me, if you are a little hesitant and feeling like opening up any book on race is overwhelming, I would say start with White Fragility because it's going to give you permission to know that you are not bad and that you... That, you know what I mean? Like you can break out of that good, bad binary. Yeah. And I would actually say then read, so you want to talk about race because it it starts to give you, and she does talk about microaggressions, cultural appropriation. It starts to give you a really good understanding of the terms and the moving pieces. And then maybe this, once you've built up that knowledge and that courage to digest this information, then maybe this is the one to go. Yeah. And I also just want to say... It's okay that these authors have different perspectives. Of course. Like, yeah. One of the things that I want to make sure we avoid is treating Black authors like a monolith. 
Of course. Yeah, of course. And, and there's, we've learned it a million ways from Sunday. There's no perfect way to talk about this. There is no completely agreed upon definition of a lot of these terms. These are moving pieces and we're trying to understand them as best we can as we go and evolve. And if this book is interesting to you at all, please, please buy it and read it. If it seems complicated, I apologize. We are pandemic brain month seven. I am trying to <laughs> dismantle the patriarchy and uphold democracy. And California's <laughs> on fire apartment. and an election is looming. <laughs> oh my God. I just want to talk about two more things. He talk, In later chapters, he talks about gender and sex. And I just want to address those quickly. So in the chapter gender, the first definitions are gender racism, a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to inequity between race genders and are substantiated by racist ideas about race genders. And gender anti-racism, powerful collection of anti-racist policies that lead to equality between race genders and are substantiated by anti-racist ideas about race genders. So you can understand that a lot of times you have to read sentences more than once. Does he give examples of that? Yeah, so a race gender would be a Black woman would be race gender. Yes, but does he give examples of like the policies? Oh, sure. They've been throughout history. But... You know, there was, let's see, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a growing percentage of Black children being born into single-parent households. The panic around the reported numbers of single-parent households was based on a host of faulty or untested premises. That two bad parents would be better than one good one. That the presence of an abusive Black father is better for the child than his absence. That having a second income for a child trumps all other factors. That all of the single parents were Black women. That none of these absent fathers were in prison or in the grave. That Black mothers never hid the presence of Black fathers in their household to keep their welfare for the child. And he was saying they were wrong on so many levels. The increasing percentage of Black babies born into single-parent households was not due to single Black mothers having more children, but to married Black women having fewer children over the course of the 20th century. So then all of these policies that required women on welfare to show that they were working in order to get like food stamps, but they couldn't get daycare because daycare was too expensive. You know what I mean? Like, all of these are gender racist policies. Does that, that make makes sense? sense? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. The first idea of like intersectionality came from Black feminist scholars. So when 99, in 1991, basically we owe Black women everything and Black transgender women everything. In 1991, the year Anita Hill accused U.S. Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexual harassment, it proved to be a pivotal year for Black feminist scholars. There was a woman named Philomena. She said, in discussing the experiences of Black women, is it sexism or is it racism? These two concepts narrowly intertwine and combine under certain conditions into one hybrid phenomenon. Therefore, it is useful to speak of gendered racism. And also in 1991, UCLA critical race theorist Kimberly Williams Crenshaw, she explored the notion of intersectionality. She's the one who coined that term. And gender racism impacts white women and male groups of color, whether they see it or not. White women's resistance to Black feminism and intersectional theory has been self-destructive, preventing resistors from understanding their own oppression. The intersection of racism and sexism in some cases oppresses white women. For example, sexist notions of, quote, real women as weak and racist notions of white women as the idealized woman intersect to produce the gender racist idea that the pinnacle of womanhood is the weak white woman. This is the gender racism that caused millions of men and women to hate the strong woman running for president in 2016, Hillary Clinton. 
Or to give another example, the opposite of the gender racism of the unvirtuous hypersexual black woman is the virtuous asexual white woman, a racial construct that has constrained and controlled the white woman's sexuality as it is nakedly tainted the black woman's sexuality as unrapeable. White male interest in lynching black male rapists of white women was as much about controlling the sexuality of white women as it was about controlling the sexuality of black men. So gender racism is rampant and rife and it affects everybody. And then lastly, with sexuality, queer racism, a powerful collection of racist policies that lead to inequity between race sexualities, that would be like race gender, and are substantiated by racist ideas about race sexualities. And then queer anti-racism would therefore be a powerful collection of anti-racist policies that lead to equity between race sexualities and are substantiated by anti-racist ideas about race, race sexualities. There's a lot to think about. Yes, queer anti-racism is equating all the race sexualities, striving to eliminate the inequities. We cannot be anti-racist if we are homophobic or transphobic. We must continue to affirm that all Black lives matter, as the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Opal Tometi, once said. All Black lives include those of poor transgender Black women, perhaps the most violated and oppressed of all the Black intersectional groups. The average U.S. life expectancy of a transgender woman of color is 35 years. Oh my God, 35 years old? So this is the last thing I'm going to read. He says, to be queer anti-racist is to understand the privileges of my cisgender, of my masculinity, of my heterosexuality, of their intersections. To be queer anti-racist is to serve as an ally to transgender people, to intersex people, to women, to the non-gender conforming, to homosexuals, to their intersections, meaning listening, learning, and being led by their equalizing ideas by their equalizing policy campaigns, by their power struggle for equal opportunity. To be queer anti-racist is to see that policies protecting Black transgender women are as critically important as policies protecting the political ascendancy of queer white males. To be queer anti-racist is to see the new wave of both religious freedom laws and voter ID laws in Republican states as taking away the rights of queer people. To be queer anti-racist is to see homophobia, racism, and queer racism, not the queer person, not the queer space, as the problem, as abnormal, as unnatural. Wow. Thank you so much, Lisa. There's so much to think about. Yeah. Just speaking in that terminology of racist and anti-racist, and then like, it's literally just diametrically opposed, but sometimes it takes you to have to read a couple things, the same thing like a couple times to just kind of absorb it. Yeah. And to fully grasp it and to let your brain quite honestly make new neural connections (laughs) on a biological level. Still doing it. Thank you. Okay, so stupid question, but did this book need to be written? 100% about a thousand years ago. (laughs) Thank you so much. What did you try to put into practice from this book and how did it affect you? So I'm definitely starting to think about race as a power construct. Mm. And I am definitely thinking about anti-racist policy versus structural racism. I feel really empowered to think that maybe where my efforts have the most effectiveness is in focusing on those policies and maybe reaching out to the policymakers in my city, my neighborhood, the, on the federal level, while continuing to have, you know, call out racism when I see it. Yeah, or when you're asked to vote on new laws, start to think about them as racist or anti-racist. Love that. Do you feel that the author missed anything? No. I mean, No. He doesn't do anything on ability per se, but I think that you, at the end of the book, you know exactly where he stands on that. Okay. Okay. Copy that. Who would you buy this book for and who would you never buy it for? I want to buy it for every lawmaker in the world. 
And I don't bother with people who are a segregationist. So I wouldn't buy it for segregationists because they wouldn't read it anyway. Thank you. Do you have any homework for me? I would love for you to just start to think about racism as a power construct versus a social construct and see how that's kind of affecting. It really orients you in a totally different way. Yeah, in a, in a helpful way. I, I already feel like it's distilling a lot of ideas for me, which is amazing. Holy cow, Lisa, thank you so much. And more importantly, Ibram X. Kendi, thank you for your brain. Thank you for this work. Thank you. Thank you for helping us all to understand this and see the matrix better. And if I have misrepresented anything, I'm going to just live with it because life is abundant and I'm not perfect. And with that, everybody, <laughs> life, life is, is abundant. abundant. Go Help Yourself was produced by Misty Stinnett and Lisa Linky. Our theme song was written by the inimitable Matt Sav. Inimitable. There's nothing we love more than hearing from you. Email us at gohelpyourselfpodcast at gmail.com. We're also at gohelpyourselfpodcast on Instagram and at Podcast on Twitter. And you can go old school and check out our website at gohelpyourselfpodcast.com. It basically is a fancy PowerPoint slide. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review because it helps other people find our show. You know who else needs to find it? Your friends. Tell all of your friends. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye.